Morning. I know you all just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage is in Romans chapter 10, verse 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the reading of the word. Good morning. Now, it's been quite a while since we were in Romans together. So by way of reminder, or to quickly inform those visiting with us today, Paul has been commending and defending the gospel he preached, a gospel which did not rely on observing Old Testament laws, but which announced the good news of salvation by God's grace alone, through God-given faith alone, without adding anything that a person might do to achieve or deserve their own salvation. And this was a stumbling block to many. This was a hard gospel to teach. This was an offensive gospel that said that all of their efforts and all of their striving were worthless towards becoming righteous. Paul has just announced Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, throughout the history of God's people, righteousness and salvation have always come only by the merciful grace of God and through faith in God. Which is not to say that they merely believed God existed, but that they entrusted themselves to him and to his righteousness or their hope. They entrusted themselves to the the character and promises of God. This, many of Paul's Jewish contemporaries had failed to do. The majority of Paul's people group had rejected the salvation of God that is only through Jesus Christ. They, Romans 10, 2, had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In our passage this morning... Paul shows God's consistency throughout salvation history. That righteousness or right relationship with God comes only through trusting in the righteous character of God and his promises, namely faith. And righteousness by faith does not require any accomplishment by human beings. 
The whole point is that God has done what humans are unable to do, sending Jesus into the world and raising him from the dead, even providing the faith by which human beings are to respond to the proclamation of this gospel. And so we begin in verse 5, directly following verse 4, that says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is a quotation of Leviticus 8.5. But Paul has already been showing through Romans that such a righteousness It's a phantom righteousness. It cannot bring a person into right relationship with the holy God. Earlier he has written in Romans 9.31 to the beginning of verse 32, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. See, the consistency throughout Scripture Israel stumbled in their pursuit of righteousness because they sought it as if it were based on works. One common misunderstanding of the Old Testament, and this was a misunderstanding I showed up to seminary with, is is that God gave his people a law of works by which they could attain salvation. That as though God himself was somehow the inventor of legalism. So I had this idea that, well, the Old Testament was legalism, and the New Testament is grace and faith. Not so. The law was meant to point Israel to their need for a salvation that comes from God alone through entrusting themselves to the righteous character of God and his promises despite their moral failings. Verses 6 to 8 then are a riff off of Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14 which says that the commandments of God were not too hard or too far off, but they were clearly revealed to Israel in simple terms so that they had no excuse for failing to keep them. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it too far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Sometimes our our simple Sunday school answers fail to convey the whole truth of God's word. And so the New City Catechism asks in question 13, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? To which we quickly and easily reply, no, of course not. The answer is, since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. Which is true. The catechism cites Romans 3, 10 to 12. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But Paul does not say here that people are physically or intellectually unable to do the things which God has commanded. He says that no one does. They do not choose to obey because they do not desire to do so. The point of the Deuteronomy passage is that God does not require any superhuman accomplishments from human beings. 
If God were, were to give commandments that were too hard and then say, I'm going to judge you because you didn't do this thing that's impossible for you, this would not be a very nice thing for God to do. This would, would create a, a moral monster out of God. For God to say, here, reach this high, but you're, you're, you're too short to reach that high. Ha, 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 now you're in trouble. Well, that, that's evil. God did not give commandments that were too hard or too far off that they could not understand them. The commands are not too hard. They're they're simple and easy. And they are not burdensome. They are are a delight and a joy for those who love God and have entrusted themselves to him for righteousness and salvation. Neither are they too far off or in some way inaccessible. Look, they're, they're right here before your eyes and in your language. Easy to understand. The commandments of God were clearly revealed and simple to do, and yet after giving the law, Moses went on to prophesy that the law would not be kept by the generations that received it. They would not desire to do so. But the law would be fulfilled only in a coming age, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, when God would give them a circumcised heart, which would love him with all their heart and soul so that they may live. And in Deuteronomy 29, 2-4, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. God gave Israel every opportunity to see the judgment on those who rebelled against him and the blessings that he extended to the objects of his mercy. He gave them a law which was accessible and really easily achievable should they want to do it. But therein lies the crux. They did not have the will to obey. In general, they did not possess In this sense, then, human beings are unable to fulfill the conditions required by the law. Even though the law is not too hard to do, nor too far off to comprehend, human rebellion and sinfulness intervenes, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then James 2.10, he says, That whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So then, attempting to keep the law of Moses is contrary to faith because since it's predicated on obeying instead of believing to obtain salvation, on performing what is required instead of trusting God's work in Christ, and because no one keeps all the law, attempting to be righteous by keeping the law is fundamentally opposed to believing to trusting what God has done in Christ for justification. And so after using Leviticus 18.5 to summarize the essence of the law, Paul then quotes from Deuteronomy 30, verse 12 to 14, which we've just read, to summarize the gospel. Throughout salvation history, these two words from the Lord have operated side by side. God making demands of his people on the one hand, and then on the other providing in his grace for their deliverance. One of my my favorite quotes, I can't even remember who said it before, but what God demands, he supplies. God commands us to do things, and then then he supplies both the will and the power to work. 
And so Paul says, quoting from Deuteronomy 30, verse 12 to 14, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. And Paul's meaning here is is very simple, easy to understand. His purpose in quoting from Deuteronomy is not as easily apparent. Because it's not a direct exegesis of the Deuteronomy passage. He's, he's drawing a connection, uh, but he's not explaining that passage. The, the point in Deuteronomy was that the law was not too difficult for Israel. The law was not far from them, nor did they have to work to bring it near. It was a gift. And in the same way as the law was a gift of God's grace then, and came after God had rescued Israel from slavery, Paul insists that righteousness is a gift now. Both of these things are God's grace. God gracefully gave a law by which Israel could live and be blessed and and have a nation that functions, even though they were coming out of many generations of slavery. This was a gift of God's grace, this law. It was not a legalism that was to oppress them and put put them down, but it was to show them their need for God and and a grace of, of good laws. And now there is another grace from God, a free gift in Christ Jesus. Righteousness is another gift now. This is the connection. And so just as God brought his word near to Israel so that they might know him and obey him, so God now brings his word near to both Jews and Gentiles as they might know him through his son, Jesus Christ, and respond in faith and obedience. The clear message portrayed by the quotation is that saving righteousness is a work of God alone. What did you do to accomplish your salvation? Did you go up to heaven and send Jesus down so that he could come and die for our sins? No. Well, maybe you went down to the dead to raise Jesus up from that place. Maybe that was the part you played. Perhaps not. Maybe... Did, did you bring the word of God near to you, verse 8? Did you, did you preach the gospel to yourself? Did you place the word of faith in your own mouth and circumcise your own heart? Did you give yourself a new heart, eyes to see and ears to hear? No. God has taken the initiative. He sent his son and raised him from the dead. He gives new hearts to understand, eyes to see and ears to hear. There is no one else in heaven or on earth who could do it. Since these things have been done by God, our response is not to do anything to gain righteousness. Only to respond in God-given faith. In addition to the quotation of Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14, Paul also masterfully prefaces it with a very short citation from Deuteronomy 9, 4. It's like he gives a nod to this other passage. He doesn't really quote it, but he gives the the beginning of it so that the the audience that understands the scriptures is going to draw in this other information. Deuteronomy 9, 4, do not say in your heart, is not a part of Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14, but he, he combines these. So it says, do not say in your heart, which itself also conveys the same message of undeserved grace, that the saving work of God and the fulfillment of his promises are not his response 
to our goodness. Listen to Deuteronomy 9, 4 to 6. He's speaking to Israel as he brings them into the promised land. He says, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going, to, going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So Paul can just gives the the beginning of this passage, connects it with the other passage, both which are saying, what did you do to accomplish salvation? What did you do to deserve it? Nothing at all. Paul's first point then is that saving righteousness is entirely the work of God. Only he could do it. And that he bestows his covenant love and promises on those who do not desire or deserve it. That's the first point. Salvation is the work of God alone. This is Paul's gospel. In fact, as we come into this center point of, of Romans 10, this is back to the gospel. What is the gospel of grace alone? And then the remainder of our passage functions as an explanation of verse 8. What is the word of faith that is to be in your mouth and in your heart. Romans 10, 9 to 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, unfortunately, before we start to talk about what Paul is saying here, we need to establish what he is not saying because this is one of the most commonly abused scriptures in the Bible. What has led to the sort of easy believism that says, if you just say aloud, Jesus is Lord, and then believe that he was raised from the dead, that's it. You're a Christian and you can be confident that salvation is yours based on merely that premise. Faith does involve the doctrinal confession that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. But faith involves a lot more than intellectual assent to certain doctrines. Faith is not merely belief. James 2.19, right before he expresses the final conclusion that faith apart from works is not faith at all, he says, even demons believe and shudder. What do they believe? Well, many, if not all, of the core doctrinal elements. They believe that God is one, which was that key doctrinal statement in the Old Testament, that there's one God, which was kind of unique to Israel. They believed that Jesus is Lord, and they know to their dismay that God has raised him from the dead. What what demon doesn't know that God has raised Jesus from the dead? But despite their belief, they are lost. They know who God is, but they refuse to submit to his authority. Faith is is not only to acknowledge the truth of God's word, but to place one's confidence and trust in God's character and promises. Many will say that they believe God's word is true. 
but then they do not understand or appreciate what he has said? How can they then live in response to the character and promises of God? They cannot. It's not enough to just say, I believe the word of God is true, without knowing which words you believe and how they affect you. Consider the archetypal faith of Abraham, who the Bible calls the father of faith. God spoke to him many times, and God gave him very great promises and was faithful to Abraham for many years before Genesis 15, 6, where it says he believed the Lord, and then God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was not considered righteous when he believed that God existed. Like, how goofy could that be? God's talking to him all the time, showing up. He's seeing angels, and he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm not quite sure I believe you exist yet. He, he believed that God existed. God was speaking to him. Did that, did that save him? No. That did not, he was not counted righteous because he believed that God existed. He was not counted right before God when he believed that God made promises to him. God made promises to him all along. When was he counted righteous? Righteousness was counted to him when he knew that God's promise was for him and he believed that God would do it. He entrusted himself fully to the plan and promise of God. This is when it was counted to him as righteousness. It's not just mere easy believism and say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he existed. I believe he died and rose again. I believe that God is God. I believe there's a creator. This does not make you a Christian. This does not make you saved. Faith is to entrust ourselves to the character and promise of God that is for us. The word believe in Greek, it is helpful to know, is also the word for faithful. Faith is not works. And these two things should not be confused, but faith has the connotation of trust and allegiance, which will ultimately lead to works. This is the overarching theme of Romans, that genuine faith results in works. Remember, Paul both begins and ends this letter by expressing his desire and the the sure plan of God to bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience that is the result of faith. Faith, Hebrews 11.1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so faith is not merely believing doctrinal statements or facts about history. As with Abraham, faith is knowing what God has promised and possessing the confidence that what God has promised is already mine through the finished work of Christ Jesus. That is faith. Such faith also results in righteousness and righteous works. It is the full allegiance of our hearts towards God. It is knowing that what I hope for, knowing what I do not yet see, is mine through the work of Christ Jesus. That is saving faith. Now, there there are some today who want to describe faith as a very small thing. Something really insignificant because then they want to attribute faith to the will or decision of human beings. But faith is everything. Faith is, is... 
not only the decisive factor for our being considered righteous before God, our justification, but it is also the decisive factor in righteous obedience. Faith is eternal obedience in seed form. And this is why the New Testament consistently refers to faith as the work of God. Faith is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8, and it is a fruit of God's Spirit, Galatians 5.22. In the Old Testament, this faith is expressed as God giving a new heart, ears which hear and eyes which see. This is saving faith. And so we must guard both against the lie which says that I merely need to give intellectual assent to historical facts, such as the the resurrection of Christ Jesus, and give vocalization to a doctrinal statement, Jesus is Lord, and now I'm saved. We've got to guard against that. But we, we must also guard against adding anything to faith for salvation. While faith is not mere belief, Paul is saying that faith alone results in being counted righteous before we have done any of the things that genuine faith will ultimately result in. So you still have to understand what he's saying here is it is faith alone, not faith and the results of faith, not faith and the works which faith will produce, but just faith, just that belief, just entrusting ourselves to the character and promise of God. That's enough. That is when God says, that is one of my righteous ones. And though we die without ever fully accomplishing the righteousness that God ultimately has for us, it's counted righteous to us because that seed form of faith will ultimately result in perfect and perpetual obedience to God. Faith always results in obedience. But salvation by faith says that faith is so potent, so reliable in these results that God will count us righteous before we do anything at all. And so we've seen that salvation is the work of God alone in its entirety. This is the gospel. We've seen that faith is more than mere belief or wishful thinking, but is far more substantive than that. It is the substance of what is hoped for, the evidence of what is not yet seen. It is entrusting ourselves and our futures to the character and promises of God. We've we've seen that nothing can be added to faith for salvation, otherwise we deny the gospel Paul preached. And finally, Paul turns to another major theme of Romans, the full inclusion of Gentile believers with the Jewish believers as the true people of God. Romans 10, 11 to 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now the Jews considered themselves to be God's elect people which naturally put the Gentiles as subordinate in God's saving plan. But but Paul's already made it clear that ethnicity will not be the deciding factor for who belongs to the people of God, only faith. Everyone who believes, 
which in Greek is the verb form of faith. Now, we don't use the word faiths here in English, uh, but we, we probably should so we can follow Paul's thinking here more accurately. Everyone who possesses faith without distinction will be saved. Early in our study of Romans, we memorized Romans 1, 16 to 17. And I had said that our, our understanding of this thesis statement for Romans should grow as we looked at the rest of the book. So uh, you can say it with me. You can read along or, or just say it with your eyes closed. Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, can, can you see how your understanding of this passage has grown through a study of Romans? When we think of these verses that hopefully we've memorized we remember the emphasis in Romans on the full inclusion of Jew and Gentile into one people of God through faith. We, we remember that the gospel is the message that God has wrought salvation from beginning to end without our help, is the power unto salvation for everyone who believes or exercises faith, faiths, if you will. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who faiths. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see how this word faith is just constantly in there. In our English we have these different words because we don't have a word for the, the verb for faith. Except for to say exercise faith. But this this changes our thinking here. This is not just everyone who believes and says that the gospel is true. This is the person who faiths in Jesus, who entrusts themselves and their future to the character and promise of God. And we see that this gospel that is the power unto salvation for everyone who exercises faith, uh, be, uh, this is God's righteousness being revealed through this. As we progress from faith to faith, it's the, not our righteousness that's being revealed. It's the righteousness of God that's being revealed. His character is being revealed as we progress from faith to faith. Now, I've held it to the last here, but in verse 9, the essential confession that all must make is that Jesus is Lord. Our passage is rounded out by three more uses of this term. The same Lord is Lord of all, and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This term, Lord, is a loaded one, because it is the same word used more than 600 times in the Old Testament to translate the personal name of God, uh, written Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. For Paul, the confession that Jesus is Lord meant the acknowledgement that Jesus shares the name and the nature, the holiness, the authority, power, majesty, and eternity of the one and only true God. One is not a Christian who does not recognize that confessing the lordship of Jesus indicates his divinity. And so to believe in Jesus, to faith in Jesus, requires first that we rightly understand who Jesus is. He is God. 
He is the one who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the author of faith. And now we need to recognize, though, that to believe that Jesus is Lord requires that we relate to him as Lord. Otherwise, we cannot truly claim to believe in Jesus. We cannot truly make the confession, Jesus is Lord, and just mean, well, I believe he's God. But we can only truly confess Jesus is Lord if this is true for us. To believe in Jesus is to truthfully declare our allegiance to his lordship. Paul says that his is a gospel that leads to the obedience of faith. This message, if faith is put in this message, if faith is put in the character and promises of God in this way, it will produce obedience. And he can say this because the gospel calls for unconditional allegiance to Jesus as Lord. This is not some optional upgrade to the Christian life. If you do not give your allegiance to Jesus, you cannot be saved. And if you do confess Jesus is Lord, you can expect your life to change dramatically. The gospel is said to be something that we believe, and it is also said to be something we obey. We obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as we believe it. The gospel of salvation by faith alone says that before you obey, God counts you righteous just because you know the character of God and his promise towards you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And there's just the time spent by your apostle meticulously making it clear what the biblical gospel is. This is, this is necessary for us. This is, this is something we desperately need, God, and we thank you for your word. And we ask that your spirit would present it to us rightly, that we would be granted understanding, that we would be granted new hearts, eyes to see, and ears to hear as we come to your word so that we can rightly understand this gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And even as you brought this law, this lengthy teaching, and you said to Israel, this has been made clear to you, it's here, it's accessible, now obey. God, I pray that as, as you've made your word accessible to us and we have it here in our hand, and, and we're present where others are teaching it, Lord, that you would help us to hear and obey. Father, we rebelled against you, every one of us. All of us wants to be Lord of our own lives. And only through the Spirit's revelation of the character of God and the promises of God will we bow our knee to Jesus as Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would do this for each one present and that you would put this gospel on our hearts and on our tongues as we share with those around us 
that others would come to bow their knee to Jesus as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name we pray.